Dramatic Health Production. Forget genius. In many ways, the significant advances in modern medicine can be viewed as little more than the product of a happy combination of dumb luck and coincidence. As you are about to hear, some of healthcare's most significant milestones were the result of fortuitous accidents followed by scientific rigor. But serendipity and science alone don't improve health and healthcare. It took curious, creative, and persistent individuals to bring these accidental discoveries from the lab bench to the patient bedside. These are their stories. This is Game Changers in Medicine. Today's episode is about smallpox disease and the discovery of the world's first vaccine. You may be wondering why we are choosing to devote time to this topic. The discovery of the world's first vaccine was indeed a game changer of profound significance. But it occurred, well, over 200 years ago. Can it possibly still be relevant today? In a word, yes. We are in the midst of a pandemic with the world clamoring for a vaccine for COVID-19, the disease caused by the SARS coronavirus 2 virus. What better time than now to look to the discovery of the first vaccine for inspiration and possibly some insights? I suspect that we can learn a thing or two from Edward Jenner, the 18th century English country doctor who possessed just the right amount of curiosity and stubbornness to not only discover the vaccine for smallpox, but launch the entire field of immunology. I, for one, would like to know how he did it. Let's begin. Smallpox was an infectious disease caused by the variola virus. While we cannot pinpoint precisely when in human history smallpox came into existence, there is evidence of it from as far back as 10,000 BC and the time of the first agricultural settlements in Africa. From there, smallpox spread worldwide, carried by merchants, explorers, and soldiers to all corners of the globe the disease came to be known as the speckled monster, and no one was safe from its ravages. Not even such powerful figures as the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses V, whose mummified head retains evidence of smallpox scars. If you don't happen to be familiar with smallpox, trust me when I tell you that it was a disfiguring, often deadly disease. But rather than have me describe the symptoms to you, better that you hear about them from an expert. Fair warning to our listeners here, some of this gets pretty uh, descriptive. So the first thing to mention is that people uh, acquired the virus infection through the respiratory route. And there was a very long incubation period between exposure and knowing you were going to be sick. It could be from a week to two weeks. The onset of symptoms began with high fever, malaise, exhaustion, headache, backache, sometimes vomiting, all the signs of a severe sort of viral infection. And then a few days after that came the very characteristic formation of the rash. It began usually inside the mouth and throat and then all over the skin massive numbers of lesions, which became, started out small and grew bigger. They were postular, very painful, and they often got infected with bacteria as well. So smallpox patients were notorious for having a stench about them from these terrible lesions that were postular and, and often infected. Blisters would scab and fall off, but this was a terrible, terrible disease that went on for days, maybe two weeks the lesions would last. And if people recovered, the lucky ones, they had scars for life. And I, I think that was a, a scar of survival, which might be a point of pride. But 30% of people infected with smallpox died. It was a dreaded, dreaded disease. That was noted virologist, 
Dr. Paula Trackman. She's Dean of the College of Graduate Studies and Hirschman Endowed Professor at the Medical University of South Carolina. In addition to her leadership role at the university, Dr. Trackman heads a research lab that is investigating the vaccinia virus, a close relative of the variola virus that causes smallpox. So this is someone who knows a thing or two about smallpox. The only detail I can add here is that about a third of those who survived smallpox went blind. While there was no cure for smallpox, there were some dubious treatments. One doctor from the mid-17th century had a smallpox patient drink 12 small bottles of beer every 24 hours. Perhaps he thought he could drown out the virus. Despite the lack of effective treatments for smallpox, there was an established method of prevention. For thousands of years, people had taken smallpox from the scars of people with smallpox and sniffed them and injected them and tried to protect themselves from this. It was clearly kind of a risky behavior because if it didn't work well, you could end up dying. What Dr. Trackman is referring to is a process called variolation. Just as we don't know precisely when smallpox began, we also can't pinpoint when variolation began. The earliest written account dates from the mid-1500s. You'll hear the term variolation and inoculation used interchangeably throughout this episode. The typical variolation process involved wetting a sharp blade with smallpox matter from an actively sick person and scratching or inoculating it into the arms or legs of the healthy person to transmit the disease. By the way, inoculate derives from Latin and means to graft. In a typical reaction, a rash or small pustule would form at the site of the inoculation and the person would be mildly sick for a few days. Once recovered, the patient was immune from smallpox. The problem was about 3% of people died from the variolation procedure. Risky though it was, over time it became the standard for prevention. For good reason, variolation worked. Unless, of course, it killed you. Dr. Arthur Bolston, Professor Emeritus of Pathology at the University of Leeds, and a senior teaching fellow at Oxford University can tell us more about the practice of variolation. This started in Western countries in about 1720. So I got interested in, in why would you give your children smallpox? What, what was the basis for doing this? And as I started to look into it, it, it became a really interesting story because it was the first time anyone had tried to show that a medical procedure really worked. They actually collected and kept numbers and published them. And I got interested in what happened to inoculation. Daniel Sutton and his father, Robert, totally modified the technique that was used. They made it very simple. They made it more or less like a pinprick. Basically, you made a tiny little puncture. And if it took, then you got a pustule at the puncture site. Um, and sure enough, you would be uh, immune. And that made it much safer. It also made it much cheaper. Then you got large numbers, groups of people coming in to be inoculated. And the inoculators would do things like rent a house, a whole big farmhouse, and inoculate maybe 15, 20, or 30 people all at once. Uh, and it was so successful because in the Sutton's hands, the mortality of inoculation was less than one in 500. They're really very comparable to what we would now consider modern surgical uh, mortalities. So it sounds like this practice of variolation became the accepted prevention for smallpox. While not ideal, it was the best people had. I guess that and 12 daily bottles of beer. So what changed? How did variolation give way to vaccination? Enter Edward Jenner. 
when we think about how science and medicine comes together and people who've made an incredible impact on, on human history, and we're talking about vaccines, we have to talk about Jenner. If you've ever heard anything about the discovery of the smallpox vaccine, there's a good chance you're familiar with the often told story of Dr. Edward Jenner and the milkmaid. Let me give you a quick summary. Edward Jenner showed an early interest in science. And at the age of 13, he was apprenticed to a surgeon in the English countryside. There, he happened to overhear a milkmaid say that she would never have to worry about having a face scarred by smallpox, as she had already had cowpox. It had been uh, recognized that milkmaids who took care of cows didn't get smallpox when it came through a community. And it became understood that they didn't get smallpox because they had been exposed to cowpox. Cowpox is a relative of smallpox that infects cows. And if people get exposed, they get a very mild illness. But that mild illness was sufficient to induce an immune response that stopped them from getting infected with smallpox. Fast forward a few decades, and Jenna, by then a practicing physician, decided to test the hypothesis that he'd presumably been pondering all those years. He took cowpox matter from lesions on the hands of Sarah Nelms, a milkmaid who had an active case of cowpox, and scratched it into the arm of the young son of his gardener. A few months later, he challenged that boy with the smallpox virus to see if he would become infected. Was this risky? Yes. Was it ethical? Of course not. But it was effective. The young boy was not infected with smallpox. Jenner dubbed the cowpox the vaccine virus taking the Latin word vaca for cow. With that, the practice of vaccination was born. He conducted several more tests and then spent the rest of his days administering vaccinations and extolling its virtues to all who would listen. What wonderful serendipity. Jenner happens to overhear a milkmaid's conversation and it plants the seed of a discovery that benefits all of mankind. If only it were true. Dr. Bolson presents a counter-narrative that he has researched extensively in his book, Defying Providence, Smallpox and the Forgotten 18th Century Medical Revolution. Happily, this more likely version of the discovery also has a fair amount of serendipity, though a different English country doctor comes close to stealing the starring role. A little bit of... of serendipity is Fuster. The Fuster that Dr. Boylston is referring to is Dr. John Fuster. He was a physician practicing in the same part of the English countryside where Jenner was apprenticing. He and his partner were the first doctors in Gloucestershire, which is in the west of England, to go into partnership with Sutton. Fuster and his partner inoculate a whole houseful of, of farmers and some of the farmers don't get a take. Now, the pustule was really obvious. So if it worked, you could tell. It was known that if you had had smallpox before, you didn't get that pustule. Nothing happened. So in this collection of farmers that Fuster and his partner were inoculating, there were several farmers who didn't respond. And normally, you would say, have you had smallpox? And they say, oh, yes, I had it as a kid. And, and Fuster wrote a letter describing all this, in which he says, they all denied ever having had smallpox. And then he says, eventually, one old farmer said to me, I've had cowpox quite severely, if that makes any difference. And the next sentence in Fuster's letter is, we took the hit. And they... They asked all the other farmers who resisted, and indeed, it was true, the ones who could not be inoculated had all had cowpox. So if Dr. Fuster is the one who made the key connection between cowpox and smallpox immunity, why isn't he the one getting all the glory for discovering the smallpox vaccine? Fuster actually told some of his colleagues 
doctors at the time would get together in groups of six or eight for dinner and a few glasses of punch and talk about medical issues. And Fuster was a member of a little group uh, that met just in Gloucestershire. And he told them what he observed. Fuster didn't think it was all that important, but he said, you know, here's this interesting finding. And it was actually really important to doctors because many of them made part of their living doing inoculations. And if it didn't work, you were stuck. Had you done something wrong? Was there something wrong with what you were using? So it was of interest to explain why sometimes it failed. So even though Dr. Fuston knew enough to acknowledge that the farmer's immunity to smallpox was an interesting finding, he didn't do anything with that information. He followed the scientific method, but only to a point. He made the observation, asked the question, formed a hypothesis, and made a prediction based on the hypothesis. But for some reason, he stopped there. That explains why Dr. Jenner gets the credit for discovering vaccination and not Dr. Fuster. Two of the members uh, of Fuster's little drinking club were the Ludlow brothers. The Ludlow brothers were typical country surgeons and they heard this. And it just happened at the time that Edward Jenner was their apprentice. The Ludlow's Presumably, they told Jenner, because this all occurred in 1768. We know he knew by 1770, because he discusses it when he goes to London with John Hunter, the famous surgeon. So, you know, if, if the farmer hadn't said anything, that would have been the end of it. If the Ludlows hadn't told Jenner, that would have been the end of it. Well, that sounds like serendipity to me. And then eventually, Jenner spends years thinking about it before he actually gets around to doing something. Now, there are a number of reasons why he might have been reluctant. And one of them was, in that part of the 18th century, um, patients chose their doctors. And so your reputation was terribly important. And people had accepted inoculation using real smallpox. But the idea that you'd give them something that came from an animal was pretty foreign. And it could ruin your reputation and you'd have no practice. In our research, we came across cartoons from the early 1800s that mocked Jenner. The cartoons depicted people with heads transformed into cows and all sorts of freakish animals. That would have made for a pretty effective vaccination disinformation campaign, I think. Also, there was plenty of financial incentive not to adopt the practice of vaccination. There were many, many people who could perform an ordinary smallpox inoculation. You didn't have to be a doctor to do it. Everybody knew what to do because the Sutton system was so simple. There's a fishmonger who said he was doing 3,000 inoculations a year uh, at a shilling a time, which is pretty good money. And so... Vaccination didn't really replace uh, inoculation until well into the 1830s. His first patient was the son of his gardener. And therefore, you didn't have this issue of you did it and everybody knew you'd done it and everybody said what a bad thing to do. He did it. It worked. It took him a couple of years to get more cowpox material to do his second experiment. And in that experiment, what he did is he gave it to a couple of children. He took matter from them, gave it to two more children, did that three times. And then he showed that the last group of children resisted smallpox inoculation. So he showed that whatever it was, it was stable. Uh, it produced immunity. It didn't seem to have any toxic side effects. Uh, and with that, he published it. And it caught on in some spheres. That moment, the first time Jenner intentionally infects a child with cowpox, 
for the specific purpose of scientifically observing and determining if cowpox provides immunity to smallpox. That's it. That's the moment. The first scientific attempt to control an infectious disease through vaccination. This is the game changer and the foundation of the entire field of immunology. I think we need to realize that we don't know everything and it's impossible to know everything right away before you start going into studies. And so Edward Jenner, as an example, didn't know anything about immunology. He didn't know about antibodies. He didn't know about T cells, but he did observe that milkmaids were protected from smallpox. And he took that observation and then just started testing. That was my colleague, Dr. Paul Gepford. We'll be hearing a lot more from Paul when we talk about the hunt for a COVID-19 vaccine later in this episode. Jenner was the one who took all of this kind of folklore and um, rural legends and historical legends and really turned this into a, a public health watershed event. Dr. Trackman was fortunate to be able to visit Dr. Jenner's home in Berkeley, England, which is now a museum. When I had the opportunity to visit his home, it was very personal and the kind of thing that, that sticks with you. So it's a, a sort of a, a small hut, a thatched hut, and they put this sign on it called the Temple of Vaccinia. Took a picture of that and had that posted outside my lab for many years. But to see that and to realize that this was where Jenner took all the people who came there into this hut to be vaccinated and changed really the, the natural history of the infection and set the stage for what uh, was a, a really a watershed event to use vaccination to get rid of this plague, the scope of which can barely be imagined now historically. It was a devastating disease. So to, to see somebody who realized that there was an opportunity to make a difference and then to, to plug away in his uh, rural English hut and, and change things was really very moving. Jenna spent the rest of his life educating and advocating for the benefits of vaccination eventually earning the title, the father of immunology. He didn't profit from the vaccinations he performed and did not take out a patent for the procedure for fear it would make vaccination too expensive. And he did ultimately receive financial compensation when the British Parliament awarded him what would be equivalent to about a million dollars today. I have to believe that Jenner must have found this quite satisfying given that his first attempted publication of the vaccination process was roundly rejected by the Royal Society for lacking in evidence. Thankfully, Jenner was undeterred by the Royal Society's rejection of his paper and he ignored their recommendation that he cease cowpox investigations altogether. He persisted and the rest, as they say, is history. Let's pause now for a quick break. When we come back, we'll take what we've learned about that first vaccine and apply it to our present-day quest for a vaccine for COVID-19. Thank you for listening to Game Changers in Medicine. Be sure to visit GameChangersInMedicine.com to join the conversation, access show notes, and discover even more content as it relates to this episode and others. Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and please leave a review. It's very much appreciated. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game Changes in Medicine. Thank you. If you are born any time after the 1930s, there is a high probability that you've had a vaccine. In fact, I feel it's safe to say that you've had several. Here's pediatrician Alice Phillips to tell us about some of the different vaccines we are given and why. Vaccinations begin at birth. At birth, infants are given the hepatitis B vaccine. That series is continued at one month and then a booster between six and nine months of age to complete that series for life. Then starting at two months of age, the infants are given protection for diphtheria, tetanus, and whooping cough via the DTaP vaccine. 
They are given protection against polio through the IPV or inactivated polio vaccine. And they are provided with protection against two deadly forms of bacterial meningitis through the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine for Hib meningitis uh, primarily. And they are also provided with a pneumococcal vaccine that protects them against pneumococcal meningitis as well as other forms of infection caused by that bacteria. In addition, there's a vaccine that provides the infants with protection within their GI tract as well as their immune system against the rotavirus. So that primary series is given at two months, at four months, and again at six months. And I often get asked, why do we have to repeat it? A single dose will not provide broad protection for all of our patients that we're attempting to immunize. And so we repeat the series so that with each dose, we're re-challenging the immune system of the child and we're building that immunity within them. Additionally, at age one, infants will receive their first vaccine for varicella or chickenpox. Now, I would be remiss if I don't mention flu shots because flu shots, although not part of the required vaccine schedule, are certainly recommended. Flu shots are recommended for all children ages six months and up. Okay. That's a lot of vaccines, and that's just in the first few months of life. Now, we know that these vaccines work for the simple reason that we no longer see widespread cases of any of these diseases. I wholeheartedly believe that countless cases of illness have been prevented. The tricky part about that is it's hard to know what disease didn't happen. And so I think the success is when I say to you, I've never seen measles. I've never seen Haemophilus influenza meningitis. And I think that's because I'm preventing it from ever happening for my patients. It's heartening to reflect upon the success we've had preventing so many diseases. Yet to this day, there is still only one disease that has been successfully eradicated by vaccine. You can probably guess which one it is. That's right, smallpox. In 1980, the World Health Assembly proclaimed the planet free and clear of smallpox. As far as I know, the only cases of smallpox now in existence are in biolabs in the US and in Russia. And hopefully, they're locked up tight, Dr. Trackman. So there are still stocks of smallpox in Atlanta at the CDC and in Novosibirsk in Siberia because there was a Soviet Union set of research on smallpox and uh, they were thinking of weaponizing it. And I'm not sure exactly what the U.S. government was doing, but at any rate, that's where they are. It can't be studied anyplace else in the world. And so there's been this debate ongoing about whether or not to get rid of those stocks. But of course, I wouldn't bet all the money that I have that in somebody's freezer somewhere, who was working on this in the 1960s, that there isn't some vial that nobody knows about. The eradication of smallpox from the planet was the result of Herculean worldwide vaccination efforts, led largely by the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, and the U.S. Agency for International Development. It was a painstaking process, requiring teams of healthcare workers going town to town person to person, to deliver the vaccine. So much of our focus now is on developing a vaccine, and rightly so. But as we start to think about the logistical challenges of distributing the vaccine once we do have it, it feels especially relevant to be able to hear the oral history of Dr. Mary Guinan. Here she is, describing her early days as a young physician and epidemic intelligence service officer working with the smallpox eradication program in India in the mid-1970s. We would go to the village and we had these picture postcards that showed cases of smallpox and you'd say, 10 rupees to anyone who can show me a case of smallpox. And 10 rupees is a lot of money then uh, for the average person. And uh, so 
if there was smallpox in the village, they would bring you to the person. We heard about this, a report of smallpox in a village that was supposed to be free of smallpox. And so I went there and uh, I looked at the case and I declared it smallpox and we started our immunization. So here's the case. It was a young man. This is a young man. And nobody knew where he'd gotten smallpox from. And it turned out that he had traveled to a village somewhere where he had been received the services of a prostitute for his inauguration into his, you know, rite of passage. But, of course, this was not something that anybody could know about. That was the first case. And then as we went from village to village, I'd find another one and declare it. Once a month we would have this meeting, and they would tell you what was happening, you know, and they'd show you how many cases of smallpox there were and how they were decreasing and how close we were to zero, coming to zero in India. I mean, couldn't believe it, you know, what you were doing and all the things you're doing and all the problems you were having. And uh, you would come and, and it's working. It's actually working. So you were reinvigorated to go out in the field and keep doing what you're doing because you can't really see the results and you often see the errors that are made and sometimes things slip through the cracks. Somebody didn't, you know, guard the, the patient and did they possibly infect someone and you had a whole trail of smallpox moving about. You know, you're always worried about that. But it worked. I don't know that I got any better satisfaction of anything I've done in my lifetime than feeling like I participated with so many other people from other nations to, to, to do something that improved people's lives. And you had an opportunity. I mean, it was a privilege to have that opportunity. Dr. Guinan's story is one of many oral histories recorded for the Smallpox Eradication Chronicles Oral History Project at Emory University. We will share the link for you in our show notes and on gamechangersinmedicine.com. These stories illustrate how even a deadly virus like smallpox can be beaten. But it takes a concerted effort, teamwork, and a lot of cooperation among scientists and laypeople alike. We did it before. We now need to do it again. As of this recording, COVID-19 has infected close to 14 million people worldwide. Of those, close to 600,000 have died. So what is it going to take to eradicate the coronavirus? For starters, we need a vaccine. I'm happy to be able to rely upon Dr. Trackman, as well as my UAB colleague, Dr. Paul Gepford, for a quick primer on viruses and vaccines. Here's Dr. Trackman explaining about the vaccinia virus she spent her career studying. An interesting feature is that vaccinia virus is incredibly closely related to the smallpox virus. If you sequence every letter of the chromosome of vaccinia virus and of smallpox virus. They're more than 99% the same. Viruses are pretty amazing. They find a target cell, they find a way to convince the cell to take them up into the cell, and then they have to make many, many, many new copies of themselves. So 16 hours after an infection, we might get 10,000 new viruses coming out of that cell. And so it's uh, quite a dramatic uh, process. But what's the difference? One, vaccinia is quite benign. It was given to, to millions and millions of people with very few side effects and was completely protective and, and stopped the spread of smallpox. Smallpox, on the other hand, is a terrible uh, virus that killed more than 30% of the people infected. So part of the detective work has been to figure out how you can have two such similar viruses, one of which is well-tolerated and one of which is lethal. How can it be that that a virus as well-tolerated as vaccinia can be an effective vaccine against smallpox? And that, I think, is part of the magic of how you design vaccines. So this is an example of what we would call a naturally attenuated virus, a virus that's closely related to a pathogen but has, through evolution, become tamed, mild, well-tolerated. However, 
when it goes in and infects the cells in a person, it elicits an immune response, meaning the body knows it's been invaded. It launches its attack. It starts to make a, a variety of products such as antibodies and T cells, the two major arms of the immune response that provide the ability to fight back against the virus and more importantly, provide memory. That memory is what means that if you encounter uh, the virus two years later, 20 years later, in the case of smallpox, as soon as that virus would be to, um, seen by your body, it would remember that it has survived this infection with vaccinia, built up these defense tools, and is now ready to fight it off right away. Thank you, Dr. Trackman. Paul adds his own spin. Paul is a physician scientist and professor of medicine at UAB. He's also the director of the Alabama Vaccine Research Clinic, which has tested a number of different vaccines. So how do vaccines work? Essentially, uh, the way we are able to make them work is we try to replicate what happens naturally. We pick out parts of the virus now, in many cases, and try and trick the immune system into recognizing that part of the virus. And one analogy that I like to make is, let's say you have a car. If I look at you, the keychain that you have for the car, I know what kind of car you drive because I recognize the emblem. So if you have a Mercedes emblem, I recognize that you drive a Mercedes because I recognize the emblem. That's what the immune system you can do is you give a part of the pathogen or the virus and then it recognizes that. And then when the person gets challenged with the virus or the pathogen, they can then recognize it and defend itself against it. Thank you, Paul. Another esteemed colleague of mine, Dr. Michael Sag, gets us thinking about what goes into making a vaccine and when we can hope for one for COVID-19. Mike is Associate Dean for Global Health and director of the Center for AIDS Research at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. In January of 2020, the sequence of coronavirus was released by China to the world. And within a day, the scientists at the NIH identified the key locations that they thought would induce an immune response, and they started creating vaccines within two days of seeing the sequence. And some of those vaccines are exactly the ones that are going into clinical trials right now. The difference is they're messenger RNA vaccines. The problem, never had a vaccine that was an mRNA construct, ever. This would be the first. The exciting part about it is that unlike the protein uh, product vaccines or the live attenuated vaccines, these mRNA vaccines are really easy to produce and scale up to large numbers. And that's gonna be essential for fighting the coronavirus. If Mike seems especially animated when discussing a potential vaccine for COVID-19, it's for good reason. Unfortunately, he experienced the disease firsthand. Mike, would you mind sharing with us a bit of your experience as a patient? I was so concerned when I heard that you'd become ill. My experience with the COVID-19 started when I was uh, meeting my son, who's a physician in New York City, uh, in, in early March, and he wanted to bring his dog to Birmingham. So we drove uh, in a car together um, for oh, 20 hours or so, uh, and in close proximity, as we pulled into the driveway, uh, he said he didn't feel really that well and we took his temperature and it was elevated so we looked at each other and said uh-oh and figured that he might have uh, COVID so he quarantined I quarantined uh, within 24 hours after getting uh, back uh, I started developing some mild symptoms and those continued for about five days we both got tested uh, on in essence day three we were both positive by day five he had cleared completely Day six, I thought I was going to clear, and that would be that, but that was just the beginning of the fun because every night, starting around 6 p.m., 
I would have what I call the invasion of the cytokines, the chemicals that cause all the symptoms associated really with any disease, but fever, chills, body aches, uh, pain on the skin of the top of my head, uh, inability to sleep, lost my sense of smell. Uh, that was persistent. But these sort of cytokine storms would happen every night for eight nights in a row. They disappear in the morning, mostly. And I think I was over it and then boom, it comes roaring right back at five or 6 p.m. the next night. It's like Groundhog Day. Just, I felt like I was Bill Murray, except it wasn't a movie and it wasn't very funny. Um, the, the most horrifying thing, I think for any patient, but especially a physician who's going through something like that, is not knowing what's about to come next. One morning, day 14 in essence, I woke up, the symptoms as usual were gone, but they just decided not to come back at 6 p.m. that evening and they were bad symptoms were gone for good. That sounds rough, Mike, but I'm glad to see you back to your old self. Oh, I'm out of control. That's why Ruben won't meet with me on Monday. <laughs> I'm like ricochet rabbit. Right. Are you feeling strong enough to offer your thoughts on when a COVID-19 vaccine may become available? Oy. Honest answer about What's going to happen with the COVID vaccine is I don't know. We're dealing with an approach that's never been used before, this mRNA approach. Uh, it shows a lot of promise theoretically. There's early studies that show that antibodies are being produced. That surprised me, actually, that they could get it that easily. Those antibodies actually bind to the business end of the virus, that spike, and botch it up so badly that it can't infect the cell. So that's called neutralization. That's what you want in a vaccine, but we don't know if that's gonna translate into true protection. We don't know if that's not gonna have some sort of side effect or two or three that may make it difficult to work. We may find that it works in some people, certain populations, but not in others. And that takes time to develop. And just like the Supreme said in the 60s, you can't hurry love, you can't hurry time. Time takes time, no way around it. You can't shortcut it. So you've got to test enough people to see if every population responds, if those populations are protected and to what degree. It may be that it only works 30% of the time. Well, we'll take that, but it'd be great if it were 98%. That would be a grand slam home run. I think everyone agrees with you, Mike. Safety first, no shortcuts. We have an infectious disease that was just described for the first time in late December of 2019. We're four and a half or five months away from that, and everybody wants everything now. Well, let's compare that to, say, AIDS. We had a syndrome that was described in the 1980 to 1981 time period. We didn't even know it was a virus until 1983, two years later, three years later. We didn't have a test until 1985, and we didn't have the beginnings of therapy until 1987, and we still don't have a vaccine. We're in the COVID era, and we're six months into this, and everyone's complaining, why isn't it going away? Where's the vaccine? How come the tests don't work well? Holy smokes, this is nuts. We cannot have answers on demand for something we've never seen before. Impossible. So everyone, take a deep breath and get real. And do your job of protecting not only yourself and your family, but our community. Wear a mask for goodness sakes. Keep yourself from spreading the virus to others. Avoid large crowds, especially if those crowds have a bunch of other folks not wearing masks. It's the least we can do to help each other out. Okay, no shortcuts, but maybe more patience. And just to add to Mike's plea, everyone, please follow all the CDC guidelines for prevention of spread. Historically, you're looking at a minimum of 12 to 18 months uh, for production of a vaccine. And so when people ask me, that's the target I, I tend to provide them with. We saw that back with H1N1 when it popped out as a novel virus. Um, I think that was in 08. Um, and so I, I want this vaccine. I want it to get to the, in the hands of the highest risk. 
but I want it to work. And so if we wait a couple of extra months to make sure we have it right, I think that that is something we need to be mindful of to make sure we do that. So I think the best guess is that with some good luck, we will have a vaccine in a year. I think that's reasonable. I think, um, you know, the pharma industry and the government and the public health institutions are very cautious about making sure that a vaccine is safe as well as effective. And so we have to go through phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. In this case, what we're doing is fast tracking those. We're not missing any steps, but instead of doing them all sequentially, once there's a hint of good news from the phase one, we're starting phase two early. Once phase two gives some good news, we're starting phase three early. So time is being saved just by moving more rapidly through the usual safety controls and efficacy controls. So when do I think we're going to get a COVID-19 vaccine that's ready to give to the general population? I'll just tell you that the earliest will be January of 2021. That would be a record. Mumps vaccines are current record. It took four years. This would be, I guess you could say, in less than a year. And that assumes a lot. That would mean that everything is exactly the way we think it's going to happen, that we have a safe vaccine, that we have a vaccine that induces an immune response, and that that immune response is going to be protective. Paul, what percentage of the population would likely need to be vaccinated? We don't have to vaccinate that many people, but if we just have, so if we had a vaccine that was, let's say, 90% effective, we probably wouldn't have to vaccinate but 50% of the population. 50 to 60%. If, on the other hand, you have a vaccine that's only 50% effective, you're going to have to vaccinate just about everyone to achieve that herd immunity. So it's, it's hard to know, um, but regardless of the vaccine we have, we're going to have to vaccinate a lot of people. The uptake of vaccines in adults in general is horrific. We need to do a better job. The flu vaccine uptakes are bad. The pneumococcal vaccine, all those that we give to adults are not that good. They're generally below 50%. I hate to be the one to tell you this. The last I checked, the percentage of legible adults in the U.S. who get the flu vaccine is only about 45%. Dr. Trackman, I'm going to give you the final word here. There are dozens of labs, probably hundreds of labs around the country and the world that in a similar way have been studying coronaviruses. And at some point, they've probably all been told, why are you studying coronaviruses? Um, So it causes something like the common cold or it causes disease in another animal. But they persisted because that's what we do. Because biomedical scientists are just passionate about decoding the, the processes of life around us. I have to interject here. It reminds me of how Dr. Jenner persisted when he got the slap on the wrist from the Royal Society. And there you have it. When COVID appeared, everybody was ready. They were ready because they understood the language of coronaviruses. They were ready because they knew how this virus worked. Even if it was a new one, it had so much similarity to other ones that they were ready to go. So when you think about even the most obscure science that you might hear about in the news, Keep in mind that we need to have a cadre of scientists who are plugging away, deciphering that language of life so that we're ready when a new challenge comes along. And you might wonder why my lab is still studying vaccinia when smallpox was eradicated. Some of it is because we have learned a huge amount about cell biology, about viruses, about the language of biology in a system that for us is amenable to study. But the other point I would bring up is that all of these scientific projects have a lot of legs. So for example, the vaccinia virus now is being used as a recombinant vaccine to eradicate a few animal uh, pathogens, such as if there's hantavirus vaccines or rabies vaccines using pox virus backbones. It's also now being used uh, in 
oncolytic therapies, benign pox viruses, are being used to infect tumors in people in a manner that allows the tumor cells to be infected and killed, but not the healthy tissue. So I guess I want to just put in a, a pitch for people who don't do science to understand the process of serendipity and that everything you learn can evolve into something else that's fascinating and potentially very useful. So you, you take a vaccine that's used to eradicate smallpox and then you might have a cancer therapy or you might be able to treat another disease. That's my public service announcement, but I believe it. I do believe it. That's a powerful message, Dr. Trackman. Thank you and all our participants for sharing your expertise. You've left us with much to consider. As the search for the COVID-19 vaccine continues, I take comfort and encouragement from what we've heard here today. If we have anything to learn from smallpox and Dr. Jenner, it's that a devastating disease can not only be tamed, it can be eradicated altogether. We did it with smallpox, now let's do it with COVID-19. Thank you for listening today. I'm happy to be able to offer bonus content to accompany this episode, where we hear from our experts about the pandemic and their expectations for a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine. We expect to have that bonus episode available on August 15th, 2020. And please mark your calendar for our next regularly scheduled episode, airing September 2nd, 2020, where we explore the discovery of warfarin. This drug is routinely used to treat heart disease and is among the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. I don't want to give away too much, but know that the story of its discovery involves a desperate farmer, a US president, and a biochemist who spends a lot of time looking at rotten hay. Please leave feedback comments and ideas for medical discoveries you'd like to learn more about at gamechangersinmedicine.com. Game Changers in Medicine is a dramatic health production. Sean Maloney is the executive producer. Rolando Nieves is our showrunner and editor. Sharon Johnson is our researcher and writer. Lauren Wiegand and Tom Slavikowski are producers. Ryan Liatsis is our audio engineer. A dramatic health production.